Welcome to the first episode of the Hollywood Renaissance limited podcast series with Rita Award winner and Wall Street Journal bestselling author Kennedy Ryan. Today, our special guests are number one New York Times bestselling author Emily Henry and host Jenny Nordback of the Wicked Wallflowers podcast. Before we jump into the conversation, make sure you stick around at the end for a special audiobook excerpt from Kennedy Ryan's newest release, Real, out today. Real is a Hollywood tale of wild ambition, artistic obsession, and unrelenting love. With that, let's get this conversation started. I'm Jenny Nordback, and I'm honored to be your host for the very first episode of season one of the Hollywood Renaissance limited series podcast. Um, It would be kind of weird to read my own bio, so I will just mention that I am a co-host of the Wicked Wallflowers podcast, which talks all things romance and books. Uh, Kennedy has been a guest multiple times, and those are some of my favorite episodes. Um, I'm also an audiobook narrator who favors narrating steamy books, and I am also an author of... I don't know, romance and a memoir about the time I spent working as a dominatrix. Um, I couldn't be more excited to be here today to chat with Kennedy and Emily. Um, hi, Kennedy. Hi. I, I'm honestly kind of obsessed with Kennedy Ryan, and I'm glad she's my friend or it would probably be kind of creepy. Um, it's totally mutual. You already know that. <laughs> it's totally mutual. <laughs> So if you don't already know Kennedy, you are in luck because you get to discover her work for the first time. Um, Rita Award winner and Wall Street Journal bestselling author Kennedy Ryan consistently delivers emotionally evocative, thought-provoking stories like Queen Move, Long Shot, and now the highly anticipated Reel, which launches Kennedy's groundbreaking Hollywood Renaissance series. I finished Reel at 3.37 a.m. this morning. You finished? And it blew my mind, Kennedy. I Jenny. I feel like you've been waiting to write this book. Oh my it, gosh, I can't believe you. I don't know if you know Jacinta Howard. She's um she's an she's a romance author too, and she said the same thing. She said this feels like the book you've been waiting to write. And I've heard that from several people. I don't know what it means, but I love to hear it. <laughs> yeah, it's like you've leveled up, and the rest of us can just pack it in. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. You know how much I respect you and how much I have loved being on the podcast, how much I love our conversation. So that just really means a lot to me. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's there's two things I always tell people about you, Kennedy. And one is that you have more conviction in your pinky finger than the rest of us can muster in our entire being. It's like I just want to sit close to you so that some of it will rub off. And like, Are you sure you wanted to rub off? Jenny? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> And the other is that you're just this creative force. And I've loved watching in your books. It's like there's this evolution and these layers that get added to it. And so in real, you're not just writing a romance. It's like there's poetry in there. You've written songs. There's an entire screenplay in it. Like it's unreal how your creative brain just keeps expanding. And I I can't wait to see what you do next with each new thing. Well, (laughs) I will say I really felt stretched. You know, like with this book, I really felt stretched, um, which is good, like stretched in my craft, um, stretched in my research, uh, stretched in character development, stretched in everything. Um, It felt really, really good. And when you talked about writing a screenplay and I'd never written, you know, a screenplay, I literally, because the screenplay 
it's kind of like a story within a story. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the hero is a director. The heroine is an understudy on Broadway who gets cast in this biopic that he's making. And um, it's of a lo- kind of like the lost life story of this jazz singer and uh, in the 30s and the 40s. And so I instead of kind of doing that parallel the dual timelines where we go back to the 30s we go back to the 40s I really wanted to keep us grounded in the contemporary storyline but somehow convey everything that's happening in the 30s and the 40s and I thought why don't I just pick up pieces of this of the script that they're using for the screenplay and it's kind of a way to take us back to the 30s without actually going back to the 30s and I don't know how effective it is or if it actually works um, but I had never written screenplay I you guys are you're gonna love this I literally ordered a copy of the final script for the movie the cotton club I ordered that like off Amazon (laughs) I read the script and then I studied some other scripts and just to get the format down and I chose the cotton club because it's kind of the same era and I just started writing the the script the screenplay from there you know and then interspersing it with the contemporary action so no, it's amazing. Oh, and it does work. We need to get Emily in here. But yes. yeah, it. and I think that, though, I will say is what is different about you. The rest of us or many of us would have that idea and then be like, I don't know how to write a screenplay. Like, I'm going to just find a way to sort of build this into the plot versus like, no, I'm going to figure it out. So I bow down to that creative energy. Another author that I bow down to is Emily Henry. I'm (laughs) so excited she's here with us today. I am too. Um, Number one, New York Times bestselling author Emily Henry writes stories of love and family for both teens and adults. She followed up last summer's blockbuster hit Beach Read with People We Meet on Vacation, an instant New York Times bestseller that has set the summer on fire. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so, so happy to be part of this conversation. Yeah. And yours, so often when books get that really big hype, like especially right out of the gates, I'm that person who drags my feet and I'm like, it's going to let me down. Like it can't possibly be that good. And when I finally read Beach Read right before I read People We Meet on Vacation, I I kicked myself. Like if anybody is holding out for that same reason, please stop. You're just depriving yourself you of are. magnificent books. That is so nice. And I will say I'm the same way. Like I, I'm the same way with movies, with shows. I don't know why I'm that way, but like like Tree of Life, when that movie came out, everybody was talking about how this will change your life. And I waited like 11 years to watch it. I was just like, I'm not ready to have my life change. change. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tall order. Um, I feel like the the books that we're probably going to be talking about the most are are real and people we made on vacation, your two latest releases. And so just in case, I mean, real just came out today. So, you know, there's a lucky few of us who have already read it. But for the rest of people, they potentially haven't read it yet and may or may not have read people we made on vacation. So I think we should probably give just like a quick overview of what each book is about. Kennedy, you've touched on what real is, I think. You know, we've got a director and an actress, and that is a power dynamic that right. really is potentially problematic. Right. There's layers to that for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they both come to the table with their own histories with that sort of experience. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I will admit I thought it was set in the 30s. 
when I picked it up, I didn't know what I was getting myself into and was just so pleasantly surprised by the way that you have weaved that era into a contemporary. So right. um, it's phenomenal. And then Emily, I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you have the quick elevator pitch for I will do what my people best. we meet on vacation is? <laughs> Having now read two of my books, you know, I don't do anything quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm so, so grateful for that. And am I. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's its own thing. It's for certain people. Um, yeah. So people we meet on vacation is sort of my like homage to when Harry met Sally. It follows these two best friends who really have no reason to like each other but really have this special bond and they stay in touch throughout the years by taking this annual summer trip together. But by the time the book starts, they've had this weird falling out after this mysterious trip to Croatia and Poppy, the main character and the narrator is just sort of in a rut in all things. And she decides that the reason she's unhappy is because she misses her friend Alex. So she convinces him to take one more trip and then everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Like on most trips, I would say. It's one of my favorite formats for a romance when someone really nails it and you do really nail it in this book. It's when you get the you weave together the past and the present and we're slowly as the two converge, we're going to find out what went wrong. And you're just so eager to find out what went wrong. And it's like you're watching them fall in love and then you're watching the discomfort in the present and can't possibly figure out how these two people who are so clearly meant for each other could have derailed it so horribly. And it, I don't know, I just love that format so much because you get to see them fall in love and then get to see them fix it down the road. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was so fun to write because of the way that the tension of those two uh, storylines feed each other, which I feel like is another thing that real is going to like make everyone lose their minds over. So that same thing of like, how how does this screen or this play feed into the love story of like the present day plot line? Right. And I know we're talking right now about um, people we meet on vacation, but you really did that super effectively. Also in Beach Read, yeah. which was my introduction to you. And I'm trying not to fangirl like too hard, but I'm not really good at restraining myself. Just so everybody knows, like when I read Beach Read, I lost my mind. I texted, I had a text thread telling all my friends, I don't care what you're reading right now. Even if you're reading your own book, you need to drop it and you need to pick this up. Um, also bonus, I was, I'm an audiophile. So that's really the main way I read. And Julia Whalen, who is one of my favorite narrators ever, what narrates your books, or at least did uh, Beach Read. And also, of course, people we read on vacation, like I have the book, I have it right here, people. <laughs> it's a prop. <laughs> because I immediately dove into the audiobook, which is everything. Um, and after I read Beach Read, I started, I just started blowing up Emily's DMs. And I'm like, there's no way she's going to respond. But I just want her to know how amazed I am by her. I immediately dove into what, a million, I was just looking, a million Junes. <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh, why? I need audiobooks for everything that you've written. Because your voice is just, to me, clarion. You know, it's just so clear. And then I love the way you write these layered 
complex family dynamics. And then there's the love story. And I think it was in, maybe it was, I can't remember if it was Beach Read or Million Junes, but you wrote a kiss. I just put my phone down. I said, this is this is why people stop writing. This is why, this is why we give up. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I mean, so amazing. Poor, poor Jenny, who now was going to be trying to like moderate, like an out, outdo each other compliment. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I was blown away because I, so I knew of Kennedy Kennedy. Like, I feel like you are a superstar in the romance space and you also are kind of like famously kind, which is the best thing you can be in addition to famously talented, which you are as well. Um, and so as soon as I got that message, I was just, I remember feeling blown away because I knew you were sort of like this, this Titan to me and to the romance community. And it meant so much that, that you would even read it and then that you would take the time to let me know that. And of course, like I, I don't know if I had just read Queen Lou or like, I don't know if it was a coincidence. I don't remember. Or if I was just like, well, I have to read Kennedy's newest. And it was the same thing. I mean, the messages back and forth were just like, it, it sort of felt like there was something in the air when we were writing Beach Read and Queen Move to me, because there's just so much family stuff and so much like father daughter yeah. stuff. And it felt like the universe was like, write, write your versions of this book. Yes, and squishing us together. Yes, <laughs> thank you, thank you, <laughs> thank you. And so, common ground. I will, right. I will redirect you guys to a question, <laughs> and I, I think that common ground that you've both alluded to is a really interesting place to focus. Um, you know, you have both kept me up past three a.m. reading. That's something you have in common. So, I have both loved and hated you for that. Um, <laughs> But another thing that you have in common is that as storytellers, you really don't make things easy for yourselves. Like this is not a spanning three days story where you're really just focused on two characters and, you know, the romantic arc is the only thing that's going on. You write these sweeping, complex stories that often span many years and have like complicated arcs that weave into each other and emotional arcs that are outside of just the romantic resolution. And, and they all have to come together, both in terms of timeline and just a satisfying resolution to all of those pieces that you're introducing. Talk about that. Like, you know, I think I have so many questions about it. But one is like, where does the spark come from for each of you where like it turns into this massive thing, but it has to start with a smaller idea than that? Like, is it a scene that you get? Is it the characters? Um, and sort of where do you go from there? So like Kennedy, where did real come from? Oof. Um, I, I feel like a broken record because I'm talking about this everywhere, you know, and it's because I'm so excited about it. But as I was just kind of looking around like at culture, broader culture, I saw this creative energy this resurgence with with specifically black storytellers who were really reaching back to reclaim some of our stories and to tell them authentically through our lens framing them with our lens telling them through our voice in a way that's completely unfiltered um just to give example like lovecraft country was one of my favorite things last year and it's reaching back and it's tell like you know obviously it's in the context of horror but it's really asking some questions like 
who are who what is horror is horror this sci-fi monster or is horror living in the Jim Crow South, like what's horror? Who are the monsters? Anyway, I could I could do a whole podcast about that, obviously. Um, but I mean, literally, I was downloading that they had a syllabus, <laughs> and I was following the syllabus, so I was really into that. And then Sylvie's Love was out last year on Amazon Prime, which reached back to the fifties. It was just completely a love story, which is something Black people haven't gotten enough of. It's just it's just gonna be a love story, you know. It's just gonna be an amazing love story. And it was set, and I've listened to, because I'm a geek about film and things, I've listened to the director um, talk about how he looked back at, you know, all of the, anyway, I won't get into all of it, but it was amazing. Um, United, uh, United States versus Billie Holiday, you know, all of these stories that are reaching back. And the surge of creative energy we see, we're seeing is also accompanied by this incredible um, agency, where all of a sudden they're the directors and they're the showrunners and they are the gatekeepers for an experience that has before been, you know, diluted through other other lenses and other voices. And I just got really excited about that. And then I started thinking about movies like introducing Dorothy Dandridge, you know, from the I'm old enough that for me, I was I was a grown ass woman um, when Halle Berry did introducing Dorothy Dandridge. And that really was kind of a template for a story like this, where a director kind of comes across this quote unquote lost life. You know, and it's I mean, the irony is in the title of that movie, Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, because why would you need to introduce her? You know, she literally made Oscars history, you know, as the first black woman, if I'm not screwing my my screwing it up, first black woman to be nominated um, for Best Actress. And yet so many people had no idea who Dorothy Dandridge was. And I just felt such a sense of gratitude for creatives of color who have trailblazed and who in the midst of like incredible adversity produced so much joy, innovated at such a high level. And um, that just got my wheels turning. And I guess that was all kind of like the seed for the idea. Yeah, I mean, that aligns with, we've talked in the past about where ideas for other books came from. And it seems like you get just really passionate about something that's going on in the world, like a moment and something that's happening. Right. And that somehow in your magical creative brain turns into a love story. Like you can talk about these big picture issues that are happening in the world through the lens of a love story. And that's really fascinating to me. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I feel Emily, like what about you? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just was going to say, I think that explains so much of the just incredible amount of depth in all of your books that that you kind of come at it from that angle. And also now, I feel like my answer is like very silly by comparison. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I see, I see that it, it it does feel like your books have this for everyone at home. I'm drawing a spiral with my finger. They just like spiral inward and they become this really intimate portrait. But there is just this feeling of like, these are two real people in a vast world. Like, mm. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it, but I'm going to get the secret out of you someday. Um, we will share secrets because if yes. I get your secrets, honey, girl. <laughs> we would be unstoppable. We would be unstoppable, Emily. <laughs> so silly as it may be, where did the idea for people we meet on vacation come from? Because same thing, you're spanning, like you, you could have just started as in the present, but yeah. You, 
made it this much more complicated story. And, you know, we'll talk in a second about the family elements to it. So where did it start? Honestly, now I'm thinking maybe I've got just the reverse spiral that's going out from the from the innermost thing, which really the way that I usually do start a book is with setting, which feels very strange to me still, even though I've done this like <laughs> seven times or something. I think I think a lot about setting and then from there, it's like this is the right story for this place and this is the atmosphere of this place um, and this is like the magic of this place and you know, if I'm writing something that's set on Lake Michigan that has such a distinctive feel to me and really determines what kind of story would happen there and what kind of characters would be there um, and just sort of the atmosphere and tone of a book. And with people we meet on vacation, I was sort of going through my list of potential settings and I realized, you know, I had written about most of the places that I've lived for long amounts of time. And so the places that were left to me were places that I visited. And I know that there are people who are very good at research who could write a book set in a city that they've never lived in and make it feel really believable and, you know, just authentic. But I didn't really trust myself to do that. And I think partly because setting is so important to me, it was like, okay, I could choose one of these places, but do I really know enough about like the atmosphere of that place for that to kind of shape the whole story like this I'm it, I've just been there as a traveler like as a guest and that's a very different experience than belonging to a place and so that's honestly how it became a book about vacations was I had this long list of settings and I just thought I don't know any of these places well enough to make them like a place that characters stay for years at a time or even months at a time and so I was like you know what I'm going to write a book that's entirely set over vacations to these places that I've been and that I love. And I honestly don't even remember like how I decided to split it up that way. I think I really don't remember. Unfortunately, I know that I wrote, you know, the book kind of starts with this prologue that's five years, you know, five summers ago. And then going forward, there are two timelines, which are the present day trip to Palm Springs where they're trying to fix their friendship. And then the past trips um, over 10 summers in order. But that five summers ago is just this random little excerpt at, at the beginning that kind of just gives you a small snapshot of this relationship before it imploded. And that was the first thing I wrote. And I really don't know why. It was just like, I. it just grounded me in these are who these people are. And then I think after I did that, I just knew like they're not talking anymore. <laughs> but I didn't know why until I got to it while I was writing. So that was fun. Oh, so you just trusted the process. Yeah. Like you didn't need the answer until the characters got the I, answer. I think trust is like going a little too far. <laughs> I don't think I really trusted the process. <laughs> I just hoped and prayed. But I'm also like, you know, Jenny, I'm sure you wanted to ask Kennedy this anyway, or maybe you have it planned for future podcasts and I'm ruining everything. But going along with that, I mean, having these kind of multimedia elements in real, I I've been wondering, like, because that was how people unfolded for me with where I was just sort of like, this is happening, I guess. I'm really curious because I know that the screenplay is really going to, or not the screenplay, I keep saying screenplay, you know what I mean. It's a play, script, mm -hmm. um, really informs uh, Neva and Cannon's story. And so I'm curious, you know, if you wrote those as two separate things or if you knew how these were going to feed into one another. You know, it it was kind of a combination. The first thing I did, the character who the script is on, the biopic, 
I never know if I should say biopic or biopic. Me neither. I hear people say both. It's the list of words I've never said aloud. Right, right. I just committed to biopic. So if someone, there's some biopic people out there, I see you. Um, More like a procedure. Right. So the biopic, the first, the the character is, her name is Desi Blue. And the first thing I thought about is who, how do I arrive at her? And she's a composite of historical figures uh, like Billie Holiday, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, Adelaide Hall. Um, so she's this composite of all of these historical figures. And I really started studying their lives, you know, so I did a lot of reading on blues and a lot of reading on, um, you know, feminism in that era. And Desi is bisexual and Ma, Ma Rainey was bisexual. Bessie Smith was bisexual. Like they were, and they were so open about it in their, in their music and in their lyrics, which for that day, you would think, wow, you know, that's not going to be the case, but they were so bold about it. Anyway, all of those things started coming together. And the first thing I did was just thought about what is her whole life? You know, what have been her experiences? And I started pulling from those historical figures, the things that happened in their lives to craft Desi's life. And then I started, and this part became really surgical because I wanted the parts of, I didn't want the parts of the script that I shared to be random. I wanted them to intersect really strategically with the contemporary storyline. So in one scene, maybe they're talking about what this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And the next scene is that that part of the script in the movie that they're doing. Um, And it also just kind of moves their, somehow moves their relationship forward at the same time. So it just, it became really surgical about where I was placing those parts of the story and how much of Desi's story I was going to reveal. At first, it wasn't going to be very much. And then it became about 20% of the book. And I had to add, for the audiobook I had to add another narrator. And then, of course, there was music. So I had to add singing, <laughs> you know, so there's actual songs in the audiobook. We went to the studio and I mean, it was just, it just started like blossoming into this whole production. And by the end, I was like, I think I need to read my own author's note. And I'm in the studio reading my author's note. And I was like, how did we get here? <laughs> this is how you end up with like a bunch of Grammys for your book, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> it was, uh, so it was, it's the hardest book I've ever written. You know, not hard on readers, like emotionally, because I think there are other books that are maybe more emotionally wrenching. But I'm talking about the craft of constructing this book and researching it. This is the this takes the prize. Do either of you, you know, like with that in mind, it being the hardest, do either of you with these massive sweeping ideas that you have get into the thick of it and get overwhelmed or intimidated by the scope of your own ideas? Is it like, Kennedy, Emily, stop, like, let's reel it in here? Or do you, I mean, we sort of touched on it, like trust that you're going to manage to dig your way out of it. Emily? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Again, you keep throwing around the word trust. I think that's a really optimistic way of putting it. I think it's always terrifying to me. I'm so... I'm so curious if Kennedy feels this way too. But for me, every single book, there's this feeling of dread before I start writing it. And even when I start writing it for the first couple of weeks, at least every day, I wake up with this like knot in my stomach and it doesn't really loosen until I've made myself write for a while. There's, there's just this fear of failure. And I think that a lot of times people do wait because they, you know, they have this idea and they think like, I'm just not there yet. 
um, or they're just daunted by it. it. Just seems like too much to weave into one story. But I just like kind of hit a breaking point with I think when I was writing people, where I had to tell myself every single day, "You're afraid of failing, and if you don't write this, then you absolutely fail." Like <laughs> that's kind of the the rule is like you can self reject and say, "I'm not going to write this because what if I am not good at it? What if it doesn't work?" But then you just are guaranteeing that it didn't work and it didn't happen. So it's, I mean, I, yeah, and I, I always have like a 30 or 40,000 word meltdown where I'm just like, it's going smoothly for like a couple, 10, like, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. And then I'm just like, what? <laughs> this is not a book. I'm lost. I'm in a maze of my own making. Yeah. I mean, I would, I concur about the absolute terror of a blank page. I mean, for me, and it feels like, and I don't say this lightly, <laughs> Every time I start a new book, I can't remember how I wrote a book. I'm very serious. And I'm like, how did that other book end up like 430 pages? I don't know how that happened. And I I literally feel like every time like I'm kind of not learning how to write a book, but I have to figure out how to get what's in my head. And that's my favorite part is just dreaming about it. And then it's like, dag nabbit. I'm from the country, you guys. So dag nabbit. Now I have to figure out how to translate this thing that feels so good in my head that I don't feel capable of putting on paper. And with this particular book, so many times I just felt like I've bitten off so much more than I can chew. It felt ambitious. It felt like someone else would do a better job with this. Maybe I should bring in like, okay, hi, Emily. I have this great idea. Maybe, you know, that's how it felt was like, a better writer would do this justice, you know? And I did start to feel such a sense of responsibility, honestly, because it became very personal for me as I started doing research and figured out so many of these lives were not talked about. And so many of these contributions had not been celebrated or had been misappropriated or miscredited. And these people died, you know, without the recognition they deserved. I started, it it became every book. I don't know how you feel, Emily, but I hear authors sometimes say, okay, I'm going to write a passion project. You know, I'm going to write a book of my heart. And I'm like, literally every book for me feels like a passion project. Literally Every book comes out of, you know, that, oh my gosh, I have to write this. It, I don't, I, I would be probably a lot more successful. It's like, let me figure out the trends. Okay, what are people buying? What do people want? What's the market like? You know, I have no barometer outside of my own conviction, outside of my own heart, outside of what is compelling me. And that, with that comes a sense of, sometimes responsibility, you know, and that can, and I have to work through that. And remember also there's got to be kissing. Let's let's not forget, you know, it's a romance, you know, and I really wanted, I wanted to make sure with all of it, because people, as I hear people talking about real, they talk a lot about the historical aspect and all of this stuff. And I'm like, and the kissing, (laughs) (laughs) you know, No yeah, one will ever forget the Kennedy hot. kissing. Yeah, no yeah, one will no. ever forget that. You don't have to worry about that. You can feel <laughs> yeah, free to talk about saying. whatever you want because <laughs> the kissing scenes in Kennedy books are always memorable. There's a certain trampoline scene I'll never forget. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> um, I think the takeaway I just got out of both of your answers as an outsider listening is to do the idea that scares the shit out of you. 
like sure. it is scary and that you know i think there's probably this perception from readers that you know this idea just comes to you from the sky and it magically ends up on the page and it's not it's scary and it's hard and you know if people are attempting something like that it's okay for it to be scary and hard right um, another thing that's really pronounced in both of your works is the like complex family dynamics, but in particular because you're both writing romance that is like more than romance, but in a non-disrespectful way to romance. Right, right. Um, and it's almost like the the f- complicated family stories are part of the HEA. Like the happily ever after only comes with resolution of those plot lines as well. And, you know, it's not uncommon in romance to have the family dynamics, but they don't always get resolved. And it's almost like the romantic interest in your books gives the character the strength or the lens to see themselves that lets them work through those family issues. And I would just love to hear you both explore that, you know, in your own works and maybe in each other's. Like, how are they similar and how are they different? I think, you know... I'm really curious. Again, every, I have to start every answer with, I want to know what Kennedy is going to say, <laughs> um, which is the truth. I'm, I'm fascinated because, like I said earlier, the very first thing that really jumped out to me about your work was just that, yeah, it's incredibly sexy, but also there's so much going on under the surface in all of the characters and especially the leads. There's just this sense of a very lived in life. And when you pull on one string, it pulls on everything. It's not like just disconnected, you know, a love story floating in like soup. It's like, this is a tapestry. And, you know, with my writing, when I'm writing romance, I think the thing is, I just don't know how to write adults without going back to like what happened when they were kids. Like, I think, you know, when I talk about writing, I I often talk about it as putting characters through therapy. And then I also often just end my books with, and then everyone went to therapy. But it really does feel like that because it's like, you know, a lot of times when I'm getting to know a character, the thing that I'm really finding for their arc is sort of this emotional wound that needs resolved. And a lot of times that does stem from family um, or just, you know, life, childhood, things that kind of shaped these characters. And the only reason they're really being forced to confront it usually is because of like the plot of the book, which is often somewhat like kissing involved. So it's like this love story is usually kind of a catalyst when I'm writing, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to challenge these worldviews that they have or misbeliefs or wounds to just kind of be like, you are forced to deal with this head on now because this relationship can't work unless you confront how you've gotten here. Um, And yeah, I think I just don't really know how to build a character any other way other than asking like, what is it they're afraid of? Or what is it that they think about the world that is needs to be challenged? Mm, that's good. That sounds a lot smarter than my answer, Emily. <laughs> no, I don't buy it. <laughs> you know, and it's so interesting because that you started with, you know, talking about the family dynamics in my book, because when I read Beach Read, when I devoured Beach Read, um, I, the the work that you did with grief, you know, and grieving, and I don't want to do, I don't want to spoil it for the four people who haven't read Beach, yet, Beach Read yet. But, um, you know, the work that you did with grief with a lost parent there, but then also 
the other complicated parts of that story and of her relationship with her father and all of that. And at the same time, this weaving it in with this amazing love story. And I will say as a side note, this will probably get me sidetracked and I'll probably lose track of Jenny's question altogether. But I have to say this while I have you here as a captive audience. Um, <laughs> I love how you write about writers, you know, like in Beach Read, you know, obviously these are two novelists. In People We Meet on Vacation, Alex is a writer. I mean, he's a teacher, but he's also an aspiring writer. And for those of you who haven't checked out, is A Million Junes. I always get that. A Million Junes. She's, you know, she's a budding writer, um, which is more YA, like more. So I just, I love, it feels so meta. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> writers, writing about writers. I love yeah. it. But artists are my favorite people to write about. Yeah. You know, like people who are poets and writers and singers and entertainers and creatives. Those are my favorite people to write about. That was one of my favorite things about writing um, Real was this is the first book, but it's this whole cast. Like it's like, here's the director, here's the actress. In the next book, it's the guy who does the score for the movie. He's a musician. And it, the heroine is the writer of the, she wrote the script. And then there's this, there's the costume designer and then one of the producers and the makeup artist. And for me, it's like a playground, you know, with all of these creatives, all of these artists coming together. But you asked about family. Um, <laughs> That was an amazing. No, but segment. that is a good chance to say that in your book, it's fun as a romance reader. Like as you're introducing these characters, I'm like, oh, there's the next book, and yep. there's another one, and there's another one, and I can't wait for them. Like you, on top of all the complicated layers that we just talked about, spent this book telling me exactly what I can expect from the rest of the series, and right. it takes so much talent to be able to juggle all of that. And have it not feel like that's what you're doing. I hope it doesn't feel like what I'm doing. But at the same time, it's like I want people to, I want people, I want readers to start to get to know these characters. You know, I think in worlds, you know, like I, when I start thinking about a story, it's usually not a story on its own. It's usually a story that exists in the context of like a universe. Like even Queen Move exists in the context of the All the Kings Men series. And we met Kimba. She was the best friend. And, you know, it's this whole other thing. And so when this story came to me, I just started thinking, and I think this extends to your question. Somehow I'm going to connect it back to this question <laughs> about family is that I can't think of these two people falling in love without thinking who are the people in their lives who help shape them and who are important to them you know, and who are a part of their lives. And so it's kind of like, it's not just, it's, it, it is their love story, but it's not just their story, you know? And that's where, for me, the secondary characters are such a way to, to learn so much about the main characters. You know, it's like a constellation of these people. And for me, it, it, it plays out in a series and all of these other books, but also, there's a lot I learn about my heroine looking at her relationship with her mom, looking at her relationship with her best friend, looking at, looking at the difference, who she is with this person versus who she is with this person. You know, that's how we are in real life. When I talk to my sister on the phone, I'm like, girl, you know, and then when I talk to you guys, I'm like, yes, let's talk about the, the, the power dynamic, you know, but, but, you know, I love, I like, I like showing that in the work is how are these people with their family contrasted to, and it's not hypocrisy. It's how we as humans navigate life 
you know, and the authenticity of who we are, but just basically relaxing and knowing when we have to be less relaxed and knowing what's right to say in this, you know, and I, I like to demonstrate that in a, in a real way. And I think a family is a great way to demonstrate those things. And the therapy thing is so huge. Like, I feel like all my characters end up in therapy lately. Yes. I'm writing a book in November and I'm like, literally, there are going to be whole chapters that are just like therapy sessions. <laughs> Like, no, I mean, how else are you supposed to guarantee that happily ever after if you're not like, y'all need some help? Like, yeah. How do you we can help? do it. Oh. Well, and I think one thing I don't think I heard either of you touch on is the the concept of, or the role of found family as mm -hmm. well, that like your family kind of fucks you up and, you know, we have to work through that and, and navigate how to get to resolution from that. And the love interest plays a big role in that. But I think for both of you, there is also this strong premise that found family can have a more powerful role in, in shaping you in a positive way. Like they make up for the, the counterbalance to, you know, the mess that your real family may have made. Yeah. I mean, with with people specifically, um, with people we meet on vacation, not with people, all people <laughs> specifically, <laughs> specifically everyone. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think in real life too, it's like you have your family and you, even if you have a close-knit relationship and all of that, there still is this weird thing, I think, when you become an adult and you go out on your own and you meet someone finally who you're like, there's another me. Like there's another me out there. There's someone who I connect with in this weird way that like I didn't with my family. You know, th there there was this relationship with them. But when I meet this person, it's like this new compartment opens up in my heart and I understand these things about myself. And it's this feeling of belonging and fitting. That's a really rare feeling. I feel like you get that with like a handful of people where you just meet them and instantly are like, wow, we like belong together in some way. And yeah, I definitely, I definitely have noticed that in Kennedy's work, like a very pronounced amount of that, I would say that's like a really consistent theme. And it's written so well that you know, that feeling, you know, that sensation of like, this is like, this person is mine in this way, that's like hard to even explain. And I'm also like, just thrilled to spend like a series of books seeing how this whole cast and everyone working on the movie will be like you know that's such a such an intense experience doing a creative endeavor together like that while all of these people also are falling in love and I just like cannot wait to see what your like genius brain does with all of that I'm scared to death. <laughs> it's gonna be great. <laughs> what are you doing with the timeline there Kennedy? Like is each book concurrent while they're working on the movie? You no, know, it's interesting because um, I'm assuming a lot of people haven't read the book yet because it's so fresh and it's just out. But um, I, there is something that I was setting up with Desi Blue and the movie. Uh, I don't know that it will, that that same historical timeline will be as present in the other books. It's kind of setting up the movie and all of that. Um, I do know that there will be some overlapping of timelines, meaning um, there's a character named Monk who he does the score for the movie. He's a musician. He's a genius. And he and Verity, who is uh, she's the writer, she and the director co-write the, 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 the screenplay for the movie. Um, they, so they have a backstory and it's very intense. The timelines do overlap. So 
we will see things that are happening right now. We will see those couples in the same time frame, but you know, we won't have known what was happening then. What are both of you tackling next? Like, is there kind of a letdown after you've wrapped up a gigantic idea like this and found your way out of the maze? Like, do you, do you have almost like a come down from it and then you have to work your way back up again? Or do you immediately jump to something new? And you don't have to tell us what it is if you're not ready yet. Oh, <laughs> cue the like exhausted size. You know, it's a really great feeling when you finish something and you just immediately already know what you want to be working on and it's been brewing in the back of your mind. But I do think sometimes after all of that work has gone into something, and I think, you know, I, I would imagine when I'm reading Kennedy's books, I'm always thinking like, how do you build up this much emotional like stamina and wisdom <laughs> to like put into another book? Like, I feel like if I were writing Kennedy's books, I'd be publishing one book every seven and a half years because that's like how often I would have that amount of stuff to say. <gasps> um, so yeah, I mean, I think with, with you know, I'm, I've been revising what I am doing next, but I have definitely felt like, you know, that emotional depletion of like, you've invested so heavily in this story and you've felt all these emotions and you've explored all these traumas and this history and these families and to just pivot and immediately start rebuilding that can be really exciting, but also, you know, burnout is a thing. And sometimes you just need to let your brain build up new thoughts about the world. Right. And I, you know, I have friends who write and God bless them. They will write six books a year, you know, and I have no idea how that's even with the template for how I write books, I have, that is not even humanly possible. Like from a time perspective, it's not possible. But also I have friends, I, I will see their posts and I like, you are a superstar because they will be like, I just finished. I wrote the end. I'm starting eight o'clock tomorrow morning, <laughs> book two. You're like, are I, you okay? <laughs> so literally I have not written in three months. You know, like I finished real and I was exhausted and I had nothing, you know, and I'm like, anything I write right now will be crap. And so it's exactly what Emily said. I feel like I have to, I need to take time to rebuild myself and rebuild my passion for a story because this one has consumed me so much. I have nothing left. And I have had to stop the hamster wheel, the writing hamster wheel, where I just feel like I got to keep up. I got to put a book out. I got to, you know, and I do have deadlines. So of course I have to do that, but I'm also trying to honor just what it takes for me to recover from writing a book. And that sometimes bumps up against the next thing you have to do. But I've also learned to just say, you know what, screw it. Like I'm just, I'll plot, I'll do whatever, but I'm not going to write for the next two months, you know, and it's gonna, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> yeah. I love, I mean, I feel like you just gave me some beautiful permission for my life. And I think everyone listening, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of writers listening to this and they're going to feel like, well, if Kennedy says it's okay, it's okay. And that's the truth. Like live your life. You can't write without being a person <laughs> and having relationships and like seeing things, experiencing things. Right. I feel like those are the things that give us something to say, you know, exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah. You have to refill the well. Right. Like you have to find yeah. that next thing that you care about enough to inspire yeah. the story. And you can't do that if you're exhausted. Yeah. So yeah. I hope you are both refilling the well. I think we've just barely scratched the surface of things the two I of you could talk about to together. Be, so I sit here and talk to Emily Henry all day. <laughs> right. I know. Maybe we just do a full tour of just us talking about each other's books. Emily, don't play with me. <laughs> <laughs> and by tour, I mean, it's 52 weeks a year. <laughs> 52 weeks a year. Let's do it. <laughs> But thank you both so much for sharing these little glimpses into your creative brains. You are both amazing and we can't wait to see what happens next. If anyone missed it, uh, Emily's latest release is People We Meet on Vacation. And if you haven't picked up Real yet, it is out today and you should definitely do that. And can I just say that the audiobook is magnificent? Like, even if you're not an audiobook listener, you should consider listening to it because it is its own special performance that adds on to the story. So thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Jenny. Now for a special audiobook excerpt from Kennedy Ryan's latest release, Real. A chair scraping across the floor catches my attention. Wright's friend has finally come inside to join us. The table shrinks immediately when he settles his imposing frame into the seat beside Janie. He peels the hood away from his head, and I bite off a gasp. It's Canon Holt. Like, the Canon Holt. The director, I, and probably every actress at this table and in this dining room would sacrifice a pinky toe to work with. Canon Holt is at my table, sitting across from me. Takira's expression doesn't register this massive earthquake of a revelation, but she kicks me under the table and hisses from the corner of her mouth. Did you know? I pretend I need to reach for something on the floor so I can whisper back. Do you think I would have kept my shit together this long if I knew? True. True. Takira casually glances up from her menu and smiles in Cannon's general direction. But he's not looking at her. He's studying his screen. He's apparently in an exclusive relationship with his phone, and no one at this table tempts him to stray. Which means I can look at him. Good God. He's not that handsome, but that's irrelevant. Some might even call his features examined on their own unremarkable. They'd be wrong. It's a maker's sleight of hand. Now God knew this man did not need lashes that long and thick, a paradox against the hard high slant of his cheekbones. Cannon hasn't looked twice at anyone here as far as I can tell, but I've stolen enough glances to know there's a fathomlessness to his dark eyes that is arresting. His unsmiling mouth is wide, the lips full in the blunt elegance of his face. A five o'clock shadow licks the ridge of his jawline. There is a geometry to him, angles, lines, edges, that disregards the individual parts and illuminates the compelling sum. Our food comes out on steaming platters just as he lays his phone on the table. 
excuse my reach, the server says to him, distributing plates and drinks to the rest of the table. Is there anything I can get for you, Mr. Holt? He doesn't even blink when she calls him by his name. McAllen, he asks. I don't see it on the menu, but we'll figure it out, she assures him with a smile. I'm sure folks just go around figuring things out for him all the time at this point in his career. So, Mr. Holt, Janie says, all pink and flustered. I loved your last documentary. I heard you're working on a movie next. What's it about? It hasn't been announced. He truncates the words, his expression shut down. He looks over his shoulder like the restroom might offer an escape from this banality. Oh, you can tell us, Janie cajoles. One dark, imperious brow elevates. But I don't want to. Okay. An awkward silence falls on the table. Seemingly oblivious or uncaring, he picks his phone up and starts typing again. So, fine as hell, but a jerk. My lady parts shimmy back into their shell. I don't have time or patience for narcissists who think the sun and stars were made for them. I may find it hard to stop looking at him, but it's increasingly easy not to like him. So when did you know you wanted to be on Broadway, Neva? My fork is halfway to my mouth when Wright asks. I'm too hungry to forego this bite, so I take it, chew thoughtfully, and consider his question. You know, I say and sip my water. It wasn't as much Broadway specifically as it was that I knew I wanted to perform, that I wanted to be an actress. So when was that? Right, presses. I shuffled through my memories to locate all the scents and sounds and sights that made the experience singular. I was 11 years old, I began, recalling everything good about that summer. We'd have family reunions every June. Us too, Takira pipes up. Whew, the Fletchers can throw a reunion, and I got a whole line of family tree t-shirts to show for it. So do I, I laugh. My cousins lived in New York at the time, and they'd always come down to North Carolina for the family reunion. When I was 11, they suggested we come up north for a change. We got a bus and drove. They took us all over the city, and on our last day here, we got tickets to Aida, the original cast. Oh, Dame Headley, Janie breathes reverently. Exactly. When Heather Headley sang Easy as Life, I don't think I breathed until she finished. I shrug helplessly. She had this monstrous talent that devoured the whole room. When she was done, I just sat there, and everyone around me seemed to be as stunned as I was. That's when I knew what I was supposed to do with my life. I was supposed to perform and make people feel the way I felt in that moment. 
and it didn't go away. Not when the show was over, not when I got back home to North Carolina, not when my parents told me acting was a long shot and I needed a backup plan. From then on, it was only ever this. When I look up from my plate, my gaze collides with Cannon's dark eyes fixed on me. Ever since he sat down, his glance has skidded over everyone, never settling like a bee who can't find a flower worthy of pollination. But he's looking at me now, and I'll be damned if I can look anywhere else. My breath is snatched under his scrutiny. It's intent and discerning his stare. I feel like something under glass he may add to his collection. Refill? The server asks, snipping the cord stretching between Cannon and me. Uh, yes. I offer her a smile and my empty glass. By the time I look back, Cannon is on his phone again. Maybe I imagined that moment. Not that we shared a glance, but that it was somehow as intense for him as it was for me. I shake off the effects of that exchange and demolish my meal, digging into the food with relish. It's a good group, and our camaraderie is infectious. Wright fits in easily, telling jokes and stories that crack us up. You'd never know this man has Grammy Awards and Oscar nominations and platinum records to his credit. He's down to earth and more normal than most artists I know. Much less intense and off-putting than Le Directeur across the table hooking up with his phone. But every once in a while, Cannon actually does talk with John and even thaws some with Janie, who is, no two ways about it, trying too hard. Once the plates are cleared, I reach for my bag so I can pay my portion, despite John's offer. Don't bother, Wright says, placing his hand over mine. Cannon already got the bill. Oh. I look at Cannon, whose wide mouth curls at the corners, head inclined toward Janie's as she tells him something I can't hear. He doesn't quite smile, but at least he's not scowling. We file outside and cluster on the sidewalk. By nature, I'm a people watcher and I find myself observing the pods of conversation going on around me. Takira's embroiled in a passionate discussion about dream girls for some reason. John is laughing with some of the crew over a missed cue from tonight's show. Wright chats with one of the cast members who's working on a new album. I catch snippets of their exchange. Coltrane, Miles Davis, Genius. The cast member is a jazz enthusiast, so I can see how they'd click. Janie is still working her angle with Cannon, and his expression says his long-suffering may be on its last legs. How can Janie even bring herself to keep talking with him looking at her that way? It's actually pretty comical, and before I catch myself, I'm chuckling under my breath. What's funny? I look up by centimeters, certain he can't be talking to me because he hasn't all night, but he's looking right at me. 
Het turned away from Janie, who has wandered over to join Takira's small circle. What? I manage, stalling. You laughed. What's funny? No, I... So you didn't just laugh, standing here by yourself? He asks, no smile in sight. Not laugh, exactly. I bite my lip and shove my hands deeper into my jacket pockets. His brows raise knowingly. Okay, so I chuckled, maybe snorted. I snuckled. He tilts his head, and lo and behold, those full lips twitch at the corners the slightest bit. So what made you snuckle? I shake my head and hope he'll let it go. He doesn't. Tell me, he says, crossing his arms over his white chest. Incidentally, that blazer and hoodie really is a very good look for him. Oh, good grief, I huff. It was the look on your face. When I was talking to... He tips his head in Janie's direction and I nod. What was the look? It wasn't impatience, exactly. Are you sure? And not irritation. It may have been. It was more this kind of forced tolerance. His almost smile deepens a little. That does sound accurate. We stare at one another for a few seconds, the plumes of our breath mingling in the cold night air. And then we grin together. It's the first full-fledged smile I've seen from him. It's dazzling, sketching grooves into his lean cheeks, and I feel such a sense of accomplishment, winning that smile. I retract everything I thought about him not really being handsome. Because when he smiles, he is. He so is. Dude, you ready? Wright asks, walking up beside us. Yeah. Cannon breaks our stare, his smile disappearing as quickly as it came. I'm whipped. Let's go. Neva, so good to see you again. Wright pulls me into a side hug and squeezes. Congratulations. I look up at him, offering a smile. Thank you again for coming. Wouldn't have missed it. You were great. If you're ever in L.A., don't hesitate to hit me up. Will do. I studiously train my eyes on Wright's face and do my best to ignore his taciturn friend. The two men turn and take the few steps that lead them away from me and this extraordinary night. I'm about to join my friends and head toward the subway when I feel a light touch on my arm. I look up and shock rolls through me. Shock and a thrill. It's canon. Did you forget something? I ask, my breath refusing to push in and out as per normal respiratory patterns. You were exceptional on that stage, he says softly. The best in the show. Vines sprout from the sidewalk and wrap around my ankles, trapping me where I stand. 
immobile. I should say something, not just stand here like I'm starstruck, though there is a part of me that is. What you said tonight about making people feel when you perform, he says, his eyes never straying from my face. Keep that. And then he turns and walks away. Thanks for listening to the Hollywood Renaissance limited podcast series with Kennedy Ryan and featuring Emily Henry and Jenny Nordback. Audiobook excerpt narrated by Ebony Flowers as Neva. Produced by Keisha Menefee and Olivia Stibby. For more info on the books mentioned in today's episodes or to follow Kennedy Ryan and our guests, please take a look at the show notes and follow their Instagram accounts. You can find Emily Henry at Emily Henry Writes, Jenny Nordback at Jenny Nordback, and Kennedy Ryan at Kennedy Ryan 1. Thanks again for listening.